Welcome to the Pardon My Art Podcast with me, your host, Oscar Castro. This show is all about the artist. Our podcast features creatives doing amazing things in the art world and across a wide range of artistic mediums to help inspire other artists to reach their full creative potential. Today's guest is Roger Wing. Roger and I have known each other for a few years through our Quaker connections, and I was first introduced to Roger through his wife Elaine when she and I were serving on the board of a Quaker school in Center City, Philadelphia. Born in Columbus, Ohio in 1968, from an early age, travel and world cultures inspired his love of art, prompting him to engage in the creation of art, ultimately describing himself as an artist when he was a child. Roger began wood carving while a student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in the 1980s, where he studied under master sculptor Jack Zajac. After college, he visited Japan to study the country's rich wood carving heritage, where he was introduced to Koyo Taketani, a carver of traditional wooden dolls, who gave Wing his first Japanese tools. The Japanese mallet made especially for Wing almost 30 years ago is a tool that he uses daily. Roger names Christopher Gonzalez, a leading Jamaican sculptor, and Barrington McLean, a Panamanian-born artist and Wing's first wood carving instructor, as two of his early influences. His love of wood carving has carried over to many other materials, and Roger is also adept with stone, ice, snow, and sand. His work is mostly figurative, and Roger's art makes me feel like he has plucked a character from a magical, mystical world and rendered them into a three-dimensional form from a piece of wood, a block of ice, or whatever he is using to bring them to life. What inspires me the most about Roger's work is the confidence that he emotes from his pieces, and I may be biased because we are friends, but Roger's work motivates me to stay creative because he is just that good. Roger's art is known worldwide, and he's been to places like a remote Zimbabwe artist community where he got his first taste of stone carving. He's also been invited multiple times to carve ice in China, Finland, Poland, and Germany, and he's been invited to carve sand at the top international events. Roger currently works out of his studio at 40th and Westminster in West Philadelphia. Let's jump into the conversation. Well, welcome to the Pardon My Art podcast, Roger. Thanks for for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, You know, we've known each other for a few years now, and I feel like, honestly, I have been enamored with the multifaceted way that you seem to approach your art. And uh, I know you as a sculptor. So I guess um, I want you to tell us about yourself. Tell us what you do and how you define yourself as an artist. Well, thank you. I'm an artist, a sculptor, and a carver. So when I say carver, I mean that I use a subtractive method. I'd start out with a block of material and by carving it away, I end up at the result that I'm after a sculpture. Um, Wood is my primary medium, but I also sculpt and carve in ice, in snow, in stone, in sand, and I've been around the world uh, because of my art. It's taken me to three continents, and I've been recognized and awarded with medals and prizes. But to me, the best days are the days I get to stay in my studio and carve wood. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, a, a question for me that I like to ask all of my guests, why sculpture or why this particular form of creating art? I, and I'm assuming that you might have other creative tendencies like maybe you maybe you paint maybe you draw maybe you you know you do other things and this is your primary thing maybe this is your only thing Um, how how did you find this to be the thing that you wanted to do for the rest of your life well as a very young child um, my mother especially really encouraged me to express myself make art and I really enjoyed painting and drawing from preschool age very young age and knew that I always was drawn to art and the power of art, uh, visiting museums as a young child, um, seeing art in public spaces was always very compelling for me. But it wasn't until I was 20 years old and in a college art class that I was given a roll of chisels and a block of wood to carve. And I thought at 20, wow, this is it. Like, this is what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. I'd, I'd taken art classes. I'd enrolled as an art major. But it wasn't until I got in that carving class that I felt, wow, this is it. I wish I'd known about this 10 years earlier. I could have started when I was a 10-year-old. Mm. 
and uh, something about it, um, sort of working backwards, carving away, reducing a piece was a puzzle, a challenge for my brain, and I really liked, I, I really liked seeking out forms in that way, um, sort of counterintuitively um, finding something where somebody else might have seen nothing at all or seen something completely different. And so uh, discovering the process of direct carving, you know, said I, I could spend a whole lifetime doing this and never exhaust the possibilities or, 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 or the skills that I needed to learn. So I felt I'd really found my calling for life. You know, I could spend five lifetimes and never learn all the things I hope to learn about carving and expressing myself in, in, in uh, sculpture. Do you consider yourself like at this point in your life? Do you, I, I know that you're still, you know, you know, a lifelong learner. But would you consider yourself a master in any of the mediums? Some some people might use that term. I'm, I'm a little <laughs> cautious and reluctant to to use any terms like that. I always sort of throw myself into the category of emerging artist. I think once you stop emerging, you're uh, you're kind of stuck in a rut. Mm-hmm. Do you have a preference in terms of the medium? I use? love wood carving. That's that's mm-hmm. my favorite. That's I feel most connected to wood carving, but I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had in ice and snow because they've taken me around the world and sand as well. Mm-hmm. And I love marble. And if if I had five lifetimes, maybe I would be a stone carver. But um, wood is sort of in that just right Goldilocks zone. It's permanent enough that it will last outlast a thaw, but it's not so permanent that it doesn't have like the element of decay and weathering and aging and drying out that, that really sort of ties back to our own human bodies. And, uh, I think gives it a, it it is a a more, uh, ephemeral medium than stone, which seems very, very permanent or bronze, which seems very, very permanent. It's warmer. It's more, more like our own flesh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been, um, wondering about how, it is for someone like you to make an ice sculpture or a sand piece that isn't going to last. And I went to Burning Man back in 2000, and I think I got my first experience of people creating massive pieces of art, and some were really huge. And then at the end of the of the week, they burned it. And I'm thinking, wow, like that is liberating, I think, to be able, be able to create something and then destroy it or to allow the elements in your case to just, you know, ice doesn't last forever unless you stick it in a freezer. So how does, how do you feel about creating something that people might see as a masterpiece that isn't going to last as long as the Mona Lisa? I had a great uh, mentor who introduced me to ice carving and he said, ice is the most subversive art form there is because once it melts, it goes everywhere. (laughs) And if you think about the water cycle, it's going to like melt and drain into a watershed and the watershed is going to run out to the sea. The water is going to evaporate and form clouds and travel literally everywhere. Like molecules of my ice sculptures could be like scattered around the earth right now. Um, There's also the great uh, Buddhist tradition of uh, the sand mandalas of making these intricate very highly detailed, very meaningful and symbolic sand paintings. And then once it's completing, completed, wiping the whole thing away. And I think, you know, they often will dump the sand into a river or local body of water. And it's that idea that it's going to change. It's going to travel. It's going to mutate. It's going to go out into the world. And I think that that, that uh, ephemeral nature of art is uh, wonderful. I mean, you see it really in music. I mean, once a note is played and it, fades into silence it's gone it never you know you can get a recording of it but the music itself the performance itself is gone forever it's just it's there in that moment and yet the reverberations of that music might stay with us might linger might might have touched us in some way that we carry with us into the future and i think art art is like that that you know we we see light and shadow on an object and it registers in our brain in a certain way and and, and echoes and uh reverberates there Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also know you as a Quaker, as a fellow Quaker, and I've been wondering, as leading up to this conversation, how much of your spiritual inclinations drive your art uh, and or, or inform it in any way, if at all? 
Well, the thing that I like about uh, Quaker beliefs is nobody's getting in my way. Nobody's telling me what I can or can't do. So, I mean, it's a very um, individual uh, practice. Many people interpret it in their own way, in different ways, but it's not a, a doctrinaire set of rules that you have to follow. And so the, the fact that uh, each one of us can um, pursue spirituality in a way that makes the most sense to each one of us is, is a thing that I think you know is a core attraction for me of Quakers' uh, practice and Quaker belief, um, that it is so open and, and individual, and it's not coming from you know a hierarchy or, or doctrine or um, mm-hmm. rigid scripture adherence, scriptural adherence. Um, but the idea that each one of us is a, a vehicle for understanding the truth and shining our light, I think that's that's constantly informing my art. So those uh, Quaker concepts, which were uh, introduced to me at a young age, have always been part of my practice and part of my part of my art, part of my way of understanding the world and my my place in it. Mm-hmm. Um, thematically, uh, you know, I've noticed that. Well, obviously, I guess if you get a commission to go somewhere in the world to create a nice sculpture, they may have something in mind for you to to create. Um, but are you thematically, when you're doing your own pieces, are you looking to create bodies of work that are related to each other or not? How, how do you decide what you're going to be creating today? I probably should have spent more time thinking about this sort of thing when I was in school <laughs> as a student and uh, worked it out a little bit better because, I don't know, each piece um, that I'm doing for myself is a new discovery and I don't really you know, sometimes it's linked to something I've done in the past, but I'm always trying to keep myself just as open as possible to what the material or what the moment is suggesting to me. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of all over the place. I, I do mostly carve figures and mostly human figures. And I think that um, although figurative sculpture sort of fell out of fashion in the 20th century, I think it's back with a vengeance. And, and the fact that um, humans have been creating likenesses of other humans for at least 40,000 years. I mean, we have physical records of going back at least that far. I don't think it's a fad or something that's just going to go away. I think there's something about creating a human likeness that has resonance for every other human. It might not mean anything to a cat or a dog, but I think other humans see a human figure and it has uh, a way of impacting them or resonating with them. There's a recognition you know, you might think, oh, it's ugly, or oh, it's repulsive, or oh, it's disgusting, or oh, it's beautiful. And all these things sort of link into our evolved brains on different levels. And uh, I don't think that's going to stop just because some other style of art becomes popular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And speaking of other styles of art, I don't know if you have been following the sort of digital trend with things that they call NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And the and even like the artificial intelligence stuff that's happening now with people being able to punch in a, a few words into an online portal and then it cranks out the kind of art that they're they think they're looking for or, or, or something that they want to see created that they didn't create themselves. And I and I find that like your your art, um similar to you know, when somebody paints a painting or when somebody is uh, putting pen to pa- paper and creating something it's it's not you know it's it's you doing it it's the real thing um but do you see any sort of unique pathways in this digital world with your kind of art i'm not so familiar with the nft phenomenon i mean i do read headlines and sometimes occasionally like try to dig in a little deeper but um i'm a little more familiar with the uh, um cnc carving the the digital uh, carvers, we use them in our studios. I don't partic- uh, personally use it, but um, in the wood shop next to me in the ice studio, uh, two doors down, both shops have CNC carvers. And there's definitely a time and a place when you're really glad to have that capacity. If you're just carving out a corporate logo or you know somebody's street address, yes, it might look really great hand carved, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe you're just trying to get across the information as clearly as legibly as possible. We'll let a machine do that. So I think there definitely is 
um, a place for digital technology in the arts and in, in carving, but it's mostly to free up the artist to do more interesting things. And I think um, probably AI and NFTs are, are, you know, let's let that go where it goes, but that's not necessarily uh, creating content. I mean, maybe there's some coders who make some really interesting AI software. Maybe that's the creative part, but I don't think that the person at the user end is necessarily all that performing a, that creative an act. They're more of a consumer of creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about 3D printing as well as a form of sculpting, I guess, you know, of adding pieces of plastic together through a machine or whatever material that people are using to create something that. Uh, is unique and original, but isn't necessarily done by hand. Somebody designed it, maybe. There's there's also applications where you could scale up or scale down something, you know, make something miniature jewelry size that, you know, was sculpted 10 times bigger or making something, scaling something up so you can see it from, you know, the freeway. Mm-hmm. But it was something you created, you know, six feet tall in your studio, but now it's 60 feet tall next to the freeway. And I mean, I think all those applications are really exciting. I mean, you can give somebody a playbook, a digital playbook to recreate, you know, a team of welders could weld up a giant uh, metal sculpture. Whereas the original is something you created by hand and uh, clay in your studio. Um, Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of ways of transposing creativity using digital applications. But I think the actual content, the, the creativity is still very much analog, very much, you know, from the hand and the tool to the material. And I, mm-hmm. I love sculpture because it is because it has a physicality because it is something that exists in space. It takes up room. I mean, this is a problem I run into in my house because I have sculptures and my studio fills up with sculptures. I need places to put these. It's in competition with my life and my family to take up space. So, um, but I like that physicality that it you know something that might have just gone to a fire. Uh, pile of firewood for somebody else's suddenly becomes something that I have to keep around (laughs) something that I have to find a place for something that I have to exhibit or find somebody else who will exhibit for me. But I like that, um, physicality. And so for me, there's not a lot of appeal to working digitally. Well, one of the questions I've, I've been thinking about is, you know, when people start their art journey, there are careers essentially. And I can imagine, you know, I, I have not been a full-time artist ever. I've always had a nine to five and done my art on the side when I can, how I can. I've learned different things along the way. I've picked up some woodworking, but I don't do it regularly. Uh, you know, but I'm, I'm constantly involving myself in uh, trying to learn things that I don't already know how to do, but I don't do this full-time. You know, it's not my full-time day gig. I'm not always making money, making art. Uh, and uh, so the day gig helps. Um, I'm wondering for you, like as your career has turned over the years since you discovered sculpting, how what was your trajectory? What did you find was the way to begin making a career out of something that you love to do with your hands? Well, when we're young and we have the opportunity to study, I think you know mostly young people don't realize what a great privilege that is to just have time to be a learner and um, you know, maybe you're paying tuition, maybe you're living on student loans, maybe it's, you know, piling up, but that time that you have that's dedicated to learn is really precious. And um, you know, you get into the workforce and you don't have that luxury anymore. You're, you're doing your job. Um, I've always worked part-time and stayed creative. So, um, I knew as a recent graduate in California that I wasn't going to be able to live in San Francisco part time. I'd need a full time job working, uh, and I wouldn't have as much time left to be creative. So I, not long after graduating from UC Santa Cruz, I moved to New Orleans where my rent was $300 a month. I got to live in this really vibrant community where, you know, working 20 or 30 hours a week was plenty enough to cover my overheads in terms of having an apartment and a little workspace. And then I ended up working for other artists. So their studios became a place where I could do some of my work or I'd have shared studio uh, access to tools and things. Um, But I always had jobs, whether I was um, 
a student. I went back to grad school after you know being out of school for eight years, and you know I was always working. I was, but I was working part time and sculpting as much as I could. And um, after graduating with a master's degree, I still didn't have like a teaching job or something that was going to support me with benefits. So I, um, I always kept working. I worked in construction and then, uh, you know, doing demo and eventually uh, kitchen and bathroom rehabs. And then um, I found work as a historic preservationist. I was doing stone replicas of old carvings that have been damaged and needed replacing. And I, so I used the skill sets that I developed as a sculptor and as somebody working in the trades to gradually go closer and closer to carving for a living. And some of the projects I worked on as a um, conservator were the New York Public Library's facade, the state capitol in Harrisburg, several DuPont properties down in Wilmington. And um, it was great because those jobs would be like really intense, focused for, you know, eight or 10 weeks. And I'd just be doing that nine to five doing that job but then there would be like a gap between that and the next job maybe there'd be a couple months where I wasn't doing that but the money that I earned during those eight to ten weeks or however long the project lasted would tide me over and then of course I also made the genius move of marrying a health practitioner my wife is uh, Elaine is a nurse practitioner and works at Penn and now that I'm not working for another employer it's great having the health benefits through her it's great to have the stable income. We can pay our mortgage month after month and uh, take care of our two children, you know, growing up and going to college soon. So having that stability of one income that's, you know, paycheck to paycheck and then having an income that sort of fluctuates and feast and famine, you know, from one sculpture to another, one commission piece to another, it might be you know, six months, might be eight months. I might start wondering, like, am I ever going to, get a paycheck from this again, you know, maybe some smaller jobs will tide me over. But um, fortunately I've had success in landing some projects that have been, you know, uh, eight week work could tide me through a whole year. Wow. So are you like, are you like um, bidding for, for art um, opportunities or people finding you? Mostly the opportunities find me. I mean, I'm lucky I live in Philadelphia where there's, you know, a lot of um, wealth and people interested in the arts. And, um, you know, fortunately, some people see it's worthwhile to uh, hire an artist. So um, I think when people have the opportunity to, they really should support the arts. And, and without necessarily, I mean, you can feel free to share your secrets, but with, without necessarily, you know, giving up the tapes on what you charge, if you will, how, how do you decide what to, uh, to charge for a commission? Is there a process that you, you deal with? <laughs> I think, I think most people would say, Roger, you're not charging enough. <laughs> but there, there aren't a lot of people doing what I'm doing. And, um, when people very quickly accept my bid, I think, wow, I, maybe I could have gotten more, but, um, it, it's always very hard because, you know, on the one hand, I feel like, oh, God, I'm so lucky to be even getting paid to do what I love. And on the other hand, I think, well, these people can afford it. They should really be paying me a lot more and not trying to, like, <laughs> haggle me down. Um, um, so it's always, um, I would say to a younger artist, I would say don't offer, like, special deals and don't, like, say, like, oh, I'm going to give it to you half price or, or you know. Fix your prices, not too high, but then over mm-hmm. time, ratchet them up. I mean, every year you should be getting a little bit more because you're older and wiser and what you have to give back is should be uh, remunerated at a higher rate. And so it's very easy to ratchet your prices up, but much harder if you have to suddenly say, wait, I went too high. Now I have to come back down. Well, then the person who overpaid is going to feel ripped off, right? So if one day you're getting $10,000 and then all of a sudden the work dries up and you can't get anything and so you go back to $4,000 and the person says, feels like an idiot. Why did I pay him $10,000 when I could have got it for $4,000? But if you're constantly going from $4,000 to 
4,500 to 5,000 and constantly ratcheting up at like modest increments, then eventually you find yourself in a place where maybe you could actually live off of this. And maybe, maybe it is, Uh um, in a transactional way, it is, um, worth it. I mean, making art, I think is always worth it and it shouldn't be tied to the money, but in a practical sense, we ought to eat. Mm-hmm. Do you ever create pieces um, that are just for you, if you will, like I need to create something today and then sell and then find a way to sell it or. Um... Oh yeah, absolutely. And my, my favorite, uh, my favorite way of working, I think the way that's like most enriching for my soul and my mind and my uh, creativity is when I do just walk into the studio not knowing what I'm going to do that day and something speaks to me or I, I come in with an emotion or I come in with a um, an urge and I can seek, seek out something without a preconceived notion, direct carving without a sketch or a model or, or maybe some vague notion. And that, that process is where you really connect with creativity. And for me, creativity is the most important thing. It's not about, you know, making a name for myself or getting rich or famous or something. It's, um, it's having that experience of connecting with the unknown, with the Mm -hmm. unseen, that, that which is like beyond the veil and just getting in there and mushing around and, and just seeing what comes out. Um, and of course that, that doesn't happen every day. A lot of, carving is just mechanical you're just removing material like if you're working from a model if you're working on a commission you just you just have to get in there and get the work done so a lot of the work really is Uh you know what you would call tedious but because there's some goal that is coming from an inspiration or because because you have to work at something anyways you might as well work at something that like feels inspired or creative so not every day is a day of like pure inspiration and joy. You know, I'm, I'm not like John Coltrane on stage every minute of my life. There's a lot of times where I'm like, have to like take out the trash. I have to, you know, whatever. Like there's a lot of life that isn't connected to that, you know, spark of creativity and joy. But when I do get to connect to that, that's when I really feel like, you know, everything else was worth it. Everything else was getting me to this point. I'm curious about how you deal with mistakes. Cause I know when I'm, trying to, you know, make a sketch, I have an eraser handy. Um, but if I'm trying to take away wood and I make a mistake, it's a mistake, at least in my world, you know, I might throw it away. <laughs> but what do you do when you make a mistake? Some Somebody once said to me that the difference between an amateur as a pro is that you see when the amateur makes a mistake, but the pro somehow makes a way to look like it was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean... I love the word amateur because it comes from amo and love. So in terms of influences, you know, I think about the different people that inspire me to be a poet or a writer. Uh, I don't know enough about sculptors uh, to know, you know, who's out there that you would find as influential or anybody that's inspired you to keep doing the work that you're doing. They may be contemporaries. It may be people who've come and gone like, you know, Michelangelo or whomever. But do you find yourself looking at other artists, other sculptors to relate to? Oh, definitely. Yeah, 100%. Um, Philadelphia is a great city because we have this great public art. You know, you can hardly turn around the city without encountering a sculpture, mural, or um, other work of art. And I find other artists hugely inspirational. Um, Mostly I hang around with painters and illustrators and muralists and um and poets and musicians and so that doesn't necessarily relate back to sculpture but it's still very inspiring and um you know i see their efforts and you know effort is effort if somebody's making the effort Mm -hmm. that's an inspiration um doesn't matter what medium they're in or whether they're you know serving others as a social worker or healthcare practitioner it's Mm -hmm. all inspiring to me um but as, as for sculpture, um, you know, I was lucky I got a chance to study ancient Greek in high school. It was a rare, rare opportunity. But I was exposed to the culture of ancient Greece and 
the sculptures of the Parthenon, Phidias, and you know, classical Greek um, naturalistic carving, and even you know earlier archaic and cycladic art forms that came before the classical era, and just having an awareness of sculptural traditions going back 2,000 years or more um, was a great preparation for me. It really um, led me from Western classical art to studying other cultures, Asian art, African art, South American art, and all of these different art traditions have just fed into my passion for understanding how people have worked with materials over the years. What is symbolic? What, what symbols um, resonated with different cultures throughout the world and finding commonalities, finding sparks that seem to speak to me in this, this present era. And sculpture's you know, a bit of a rare thing. I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend last night who said, it, you know, it never crosses my mind to make a sculpture. I never even once thought about making a sculpture. Well, I've spent my whole life thinking about making sculpture, so that kind of puts me in a, a, a different category than a lot of people. And um, so, of course, like looking at, you know, Renaissance artists, like you said, Michelangelo, looking at 20th century artists like Henry Moore, all these artists um, inform me in ways that I don't think, you know, anybody living in an earlier era couldn't have had access to such a broad range of mm. history and culture. So I feel really, really fortunate to be exposed to all that, but a little bit overwhelmed at like, where where do I then put myself you know, in this like wider conversation of, of global art, human culture? Um, so sometimes I feel a little bit adrift, a little bit, you know, floating around aimlessly, but, you know, certain things really connect with me, like um, the way that, you know, 20th century artists really connected with the so-called primitive arts, the arts of Africa or the, the um, Pacific Rim. Um, we, we understand that those cultures had intelligence and power and understanding of their world in a way that mm. we can learn from today. And so those arts, artists who appropriated Picasso or Henry Moore, appropriated from other cultures, weren't so much doing it as, uh, I would say, colonizers, but so much as they were um, just human explorers, just trying to say, what have people learned in the past and can they teach us today? So can they bring, can they bring, can that transmission carry through into our contemporary culture and uh, give us... I don't know, maybe some wisdom or some some survival mm -hmm. tools. Mm -hmm. I, um, the larger-than-life size stuff that I've seen you create, uh, it, well, most of it has been on social media as you've been posting your work uh, that you do around the world. Do you have a scale that you prefer? Uh, you know, small, large, is it all gravy to you um, based on the fact that you're doing something with your hands and making something out of nothing? Well, well, since you mentioned social media, let me plug my sites. RogerWing.com is my uh, website. There's lots of uh, stories, uh, little blog entries, and a uh, gallery of, of my work at RogerWing.com. But you can also find me on the socials. Um, I love working on a monumental scale. I mean, there's something about working larger than life. And I think monumental just means one and a half times life or bigger. Anything that's... You know, so an eight-foot-tall figure of somebody who's five feet tall would be monumental. It doesn't have to be five times larger to be monumental. But as soon as you take it out of the studio and put it in the context of architecture or outdoor setting or landscape, the piece shrinks down very, very quickly, mm. becomes minuscule. So if you want to work in a public setting or in a large atrium or foyer you have to really consider scale scale is really important um i carve trees in people's yards because you know trees grow to the scale that they are just by their nature they just take up as much space as you let them and given the time they take up the space really beautifully a lot of people when they take a tree down they feel an absence they feel a, a, something's missing like a gap is in their life and they really you know have nostalgic feelings for their trees that you know, die or become a, a hazard of some kind. Um, 
So they asked me to come in and carve something. Well, the tree then is setting the scale, but it's usually much larger than a human scale. So anytime I do figures out of a large tree trunk, I can do that heroic or monumental scale where it's, you know, one or two times mm. larger than life. And um, that's sort of necessary in the outdoor setting. So I've always uh, aspired to doing large uh, sculptures um, for the outdoors and in public spaces, but it's not always straightforward to go about getting those commissions, getting getting those getting the opportunity to work like that. So I do a lot of pieces that are intended to sit on a tabletop or a pedestal or in your home or maybe even a windowsill or a, a ledge or something in your house, so that you know people can live with it. It's something that they can bring into their homes and 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 have as part of their day to day. But of course, the um, opportunity to work mm-hmm. large is always very. Do you simple. work alone? Oh. And ice being, well, I, the, I started to work large and with chainsaws because I was um, doing the World Ice Art Championships mm-hmm. in Fairbanks, Alaska. And if you're in Alaska in March, the ice has frozen, you know, two or three feet, maybe even four feet thick. And because they have the machinery to harvest the ice there, it's it's practically a free material. You get tens of thousands of pounds of ice to work with when you do a multi-block sculpture in Fairbanks. So it really was, and you only have five days to do it, five and a half days, so get on with it, like hurry up. So being able to work that big and that quickly was very, very exciting, very inspirational, and it made me aspire to do larger and larger um, wood carvings and work work on a larger scale because you need a certain amount of uh, speed and productivity to get through something that big without... You know, without making it, you know, at some certain point, you you got to be making more than two dollars an hour to make it worth your while. If you're taking too long on a piece, you're just not even covering the cost of your tools. Right, and equipment. right, yeah. So, are you like you know similar to maybe muralists who are working large scale? Do you uh, work with people who are learning the trade, like apprentices, or are are, are most of these pieces all you? I like I like being a one man show. I mean, on the one hand, it's keeping my overheads down. It simplifies things, it streamlines things. I'm not I don't have to worry about payroll or um, supporting somebody else, or you know, if I don't have to lay anybody off, I don't have to worry about like downsizing. If it's just me, it's just me, and I I like that approach. Um, there's definitely days when I'm thinking like God, I wish I had somebody here to like schlep the scaffolding and set up my scaffolding and rake the wood chips and, and help out. And I've had people, you know, stop by and, you know, work with me for a day or two and just do those sort of menial tasks. Um, I've had friends who were carvers that, you know, got with me on a big, big project and, you know, put in a couple of days worth of chipping away with me. And, uh, that's been fun. It's more for camaraderie than it is for, uh, you know, actually completing the work. So I, I'm always biting off more than I can chew, but I try to be able to like get through it by the end of the day. I try to do it all myself. Nice. In terms of like your, your goals, um, you know, I, I feel like artists always have aspirations, even the ones who are masters at their craft, they're looking for bigger and different things. You know, what are your big picture goals given where you are in your career what, what's on the horizon for you that you would like to do that you maybe haven't done yet well i i really enjoy opportunities to do these uh public events and um i did a wood carving symposium in denmark this past year in august and being out and working in a public setting people come through and you never know whose eyes might fall upon you or your work or um who might get a boost or an inspiration of seeing your work. So, I mean, every time I work in public, I'm, it's really rewarding because there's always like that one kid who like sits down and won't leave. And like his parents are like, come on, there's like karate demo over here or there's cotton candy over there. And the kids like won't budge. Like the kid will just stick and stay like, no, no, this is cool. This is, and I was like, wow. I'm like, I'm as cool as karate. That's cool. <laughs> like, um, There's always that one kid who just connects with what I'm doing and maybe they'll go on to try it someday. And for me, that's that's as important as, you know, getting a big commission or getting, a, a you know, my name in the paper or something. It's, no, like making a connection one-to-one with another individual. The way that uh, mentors and t- 
teachers of mine have inspired me through you know childhood and to the present day. I just want to make that connection that that something's going on here that if you pay attention, if you get into it, maybe maybe it's going to give you that connection too. So, I mean, in terms of aspirations and goals, yeah, I love getting my work in front of other people's eyes. Um, I like, I did a, a ice carving on the street corner in New York uh, just two weeks ago. Um, and my work was seen by a whole new set of eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does, how does your family participate in your creative work? The Are, are your other members of your family artists are they inspiring you or are you inspiring them like what's your how does family fit into your art as, as little as possible I, th- I think is what they would say <laughs> i mean they know that dad's doing this and you know the fact that i'm an artist just becomes like wallpaper it's just a fact of life that they just really accustomed to and used to and you know sometimes i have to say like yeah but i'm gonna be carving ice down Fishtown, and you, you should come out and see me doing my thing. And they're like, "Yeah, but isn't that the same thing you did yet last year and the year before?" And like, "Yeah, come on, we've seen it, Dad. Like, it's it's not that it's not that interesting to us." Um, but but for me, my family is like the whole reason to do it. I mean, art is great, but you know, nothing beats family, right? Um, so I've always felt that if I could be an artist and have a family life and hold it together as a dad and as a sibling or a son or you know be be a family member that was just as important as anything i could do creatively i never thought that like my creativity should come before my family cuz i've seen i've seen those guys i've seen those guys and their kids are estranged from them they they like wrecked marriages they've you know they've they've maybe gone on to fame and acclaim but they left a trail of debris in their wake and uh, it was never my goal to you know put art before everything else i thought you know if i could have art creativity in my life and have a family that would be a true success so family's always been primary and very important to to me but i think you know they'd be happy if i was a dentist or you know no knock on dentist but um didn't matter what I would do. I could be a, a bus driver. I could be a investment banker, whatever. Like it would, I just be dad to them. <laughs> That's fair. Are you the only artist in your family, immediate other or otherwise? I am. There's uh, I come from a family of educators. So my parents are both educators. My sister's an educator. Um, my aunt's an educator. I mean, I come from a lot of teachers. So I've always seen my role as an artist, but also as an educator. And well, I think um, as an educator, as a person who is, you know, I think inspiring others, uh, you inspire me for sure to create art and to create things that are uh, be sometimes beyond, you know, my capacity. I, I, I dabble in different types of things from found art to messing around with carving wood from time to time. Um, and you do podcasts. And I do podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say, like, if, you know, if you were to go back in time, uh, all the things that you have learned since you have discovered this form of creativity, um, what what are like the three things, two or three things that you know that you wish you would have known back then that you now know that you would want to pass on to uh, aspiring artists and that, you know, young artists or people who are in their 50s or 60s just starting out as an artist, what a beginner artist, what would you tell them? Well, well thank you, Oscar. Um, first of all, I'm humbled by your words, but I'm also inspired by you. I've aspired to uh, hosting a podcast myself and I never got around to like put it all together. So I commend you for, you know, a podcast, not just a podcast, but a podcast that touches so deeply on what I care about. And um, I really am looking forward to all the interviews you're putting together and uh, really look forward to following this podcast. So you're inspiring too, man. Thank you. Um, I'm looking back at my notes. I would say to a younger artist, like draw, 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 or like fill journals or whatever it is you do to get your ideas down that you can look back on later. Because when you're young and you're fresh and you're, that spark of inspiration is never that far away. And I tell you, it doesn't get easier the older you get. That spark 
that creativity, it's gets more and more at arm's length. It gets harder to reach. It, it's uh, so if you could fill up journals or sketchbooks or put those ideas down on paper, that's a gold mine that you can come back to once you have the skill set and the speed and the knowledge to execute. <laughs> you can come back to those ideas. So I would say drawing, modeling, journaling, anything, recording, whatever it is you do, get it down, tuck it away, keep it safe for a rainy day. You might need it one day. Um, if, if a teacher opens themselves up to you, I would say get in there, learn whatever you can from that teacher, even if it's something that doesn't necessarily inspire you in the moment, even if you think like this might not be something that I plan to use, this isn't applicable to my interests. Like if somebody is there willing to teach you, you better perk your ears up and get in the front of the class and pay attention because teachers, as much as we all have known teachers to our lives, a true teacher is a rare thing. And if they want to, if they've, seen you and chosen you to impart something upon you it doesn't matter whether it's you know laying bricks or target practice or whatever it is if they have a skill that they can teach you and they're uh, a master of their craft you need to sit up and pay attention because that opportunity might pass and you might never get that opportunity again and you might think that oh what does archery have to do with what i want to do being an author or whatever well Read the book, The Zen and the Art of Archery. <laughs> like anything you learn from a master is going to teach you in all facets of your life. So pay attention for those teachers because they don't come along very often. Um, and the other thing is, is that don't take art for granted. I mean, there's places in the world where art, art making is illegal. You can be locked up. You can be, you know, they'll put you in jail and throw away the key. They'll trump up charges against you just to get you off the streets because art can be subversive, it can be dangerous, it can, you know, level the field, it can be a very democratizing power. And some people don't want that. And if you have a voice and an ability to create, you need to guard that and cherish that and not take that for granted because there are people languishing in jails or people who've never had a pen and paper to draw with or have never had a voice if you are somehow given the opportunity to create, just cherish that, nurture that, respect that. I think that was three. Did I get three? Yeah, that's about three. Any things on the horizon for you in terms of like the new year? Any any um, things that we got going on? Oh yeah, yeah. So I have a I have a tree trunk. That I'm working on a design for a commission right now out in Haverford, um, a suburb in Philly on the main line. And uh, the tree is 50 inches across, over four feet across, 11 feet up in the air. And it comes down to about um, 60 inches at chest height. And then it flares out to the uh, roots in the ground. And I'm going to have to create uh, a model for that and a design for that. And then I'll probably spend about three weeks, maybe three or four weeks carving that um, probably in... Uh, in April. And uh, that's very exciting because it's just such a huge blank canvas. It's a red oak tree that grew under ideal conditions and, you know, not a tree branch or not, or any kind of rot or illness in the wood for that whole section, as far as I can tell from the outside. So that's really exciting. The other thing is I'm going to carve a three meter cube of snow. If you can picture that it's, uh, you know, about 12 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet and um, uh, in yellow knife Northwest territory. So far North reaches of the Canadian tundra in the beginning of March with a team from uh, an international team from great Britain and Boston. We're all going to meet up in yellow knife and carve a block of snow there for about five days. Nice. And I'm curious, like I, as you started describing a block that's 12 by 12 by 12, I'm thinking with maybe a little less, <laughs> they just, they, they build a box, a plywood box. They fill it up with natural snow from the lake surface and compact it into this cube. Then they take the plywood walls off and you've got this three meter by three meter by three meter giant cube of snow that you go into and carve. 
whatever you want. And well, the theme I think is it's it's a fantasy theme. We're going to do some kind of a, a medieval dragon creature. Um, not my design, but strangely very parallel to something I did earlier this year up at um, Doylestown at the Moravian Tile Works. Henry Mercer was a big fan of medieval dragons, and so I carved a sort of a mascot for the Tile Works up there, a wooden dragon. And the dragon that I carved last summer is an awful lot like the one designed by my British friend, Mark. So, like, sometimes things just line up. There's a, there's a synchronicity in things. So I'm looking forward to doing that in snow. And... Um, it's going to be really, really cold. So it's going to be ideal conditions for uh, working in snow and hang out with some amazing artists in a really rare place. And maybe we'll work, stay up all through the night and see the Northern Lights. Nice. Definitely take great pictures. <laughs> That's a couple of things I'm really looking forward to. And, um, you know, just making more art. That's always it. You know, that's always the goal, make more art. Well, before I let you go, um, please shout out your ways for people to find you again. It's uh, your your website and social media. Yeah, again, I'm uh, Roger Wing. My website is rogerwing.com, R-O-G-E-R-W-I-N-G. And you can find me just by searching my name on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Hire me, please. I love getting paid to do what I love. And um, take a look at my website see some of the adventures I've been on in uh, China, in Europe, in Scandinavia, Canada and Alaska. I'm really looking forward to uh, this upcoming project. I'll be sure to be posting blogs about it on my website. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to following how that goes. Well, thank you again, Roger, for, for being part of this conversation. I really appreciate you and your time. And I am definitely looking forward to seeing more of you and your work in 2023 uh you know i just i just got over covid uh i i you know, i, I kind of feel like it's never going to go away i'm afraid but i just got over it so like getting back out into the world and when the spring hits and you know being around artists particularly like trying to find more ways to be around people that are doing art that i don't even necessarily do but that that people like you that inspire me so you know whenever you get the um club hangout together uh feel free to invite me out i'd love to hang out and talk uh all kinds of things but particularly art so let's do that well you're very welcome oscar thank you for having me today and i'm glad you're feeling better thanks roger continue to heal get better happy new year happy new year oscar look forward to the rest of the podcast thanks for listening to this episode of the pardon my art podcast I hope that you learned something or were inspired by something that our guest had to say. Our goal is to build one of the largest networks of artists with the simple motto of each one teach one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Oscar and Oscar is spelled with a K. Well, that's all for now. Stay tuned for more interesting conversations with artists who are ready to share their amazing stories and inspire you to create your own. Be good to yourself and do great things.